giving the same lecture on the development of the Christian mind that I gave ten years ago is, is somewhat embarrassing. Um, I just wonder, what did I say back then? And as I was coming in the door, someone said, uh, I can remember distinctly you said this, Ronald, but I did not remember that. Um, but uh, I think I did, uh, on that occasion, begin with uh, the opening sentences of uh, uh, Harry Blemeyer's uh, wonderful little book, which I was delighted to see as, as I was picked up at the, at the station this afternoon uh, by Ian. It's still in print, at least in, in the United States, and I do recommend it to you. It's called The Christian Mind. Harry Blemeyer's uh, worked uh, not far from Labrie uh, in Hampshire in, in Winchester, uh, for many years, but is now living in the Lake District, and you've had him to speak here on occasions. Uh, he's just brought out a new book, The Post-Christian Mind, but this one, The Christian Mind, is one of the early ones, and it is very well worth, worth having. Now, uh, he starts somewhat dramatically. I do remember that I read this. There is no longer a Christian mind. This is how the book begins. There is no longer a Christian mind, the Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with a degree of weakness and nervelessness unmatched in human history. It is difficult to do justice in words to the complete loss of intellectual morale in the 20th century church. One cannot characterize it without having recourse to language which will sound hysterical and melodramatic. Uh, the, there are three great ironies, it seems to me, uh, that uh, we, we see in the evangelical world as we come to the end of the 20th century. And these are my own expression of that same concern about the lack of a Christian mind, even at the end of the 20th century. Uh, the first is that we have had more evangelism in this century than ever before in history. And that evangelism, I mean in the history of the church, and that evangelism has been mobilized largely out of this country and the United States, has it not? Uh, more money spent, uh, more people involved, uh, more advertising to that effect, more huge rallies, etc., etc., and I'm not wanting to depreciate any of it. And I'm thankful for God I was uh, converted through an evangelistic meeting, so... Uh, please don't misunderstand me. I'm just making the point that although we have had this enormous effort, actually we have lost our own civilization, our own culture. In other words, we haven't made any dent on our own culture. In the, in the 80s, the mainline churches were losing 1,000 people per week. Oh, this is obvious, isn't it? I mean, it's quite apparent when you look around uh, Gene Veith, whose book I've just recently read, he's, he's written uh, a book called Postmodern Thought. He's an American scholar, a Lutheran, in fact. Again, I recommend him to you, any of his work, V-E-I-T-H. But in a book written in 1993 called Modern Fascism, he says this, the Judeo-Christian tradition, with its objective morality and transcendent spiritual truth, transcendent spiritual truth, has been all but erased, erased from the intellectual and cultural establishment. I think those working in the Christian Institute can testify to that uh, probably better than anyone else. Uh, the, there is a memory, 
there is a memory of Christian truth and Christian morality, mm-hmm. thankfully, thankfully. But in terms of, of the influence into, into public life, uh, in education, for example, in academics, uh, in the medical profession and so on, it has almost, as he says, been erased from the cultural establishment. So there's that first irony. Huge amount of evangelism and our own civilization going down the drain. The second is that it is a civilization, and I feel this intensely now living in Cambridge, uh, where all the colleges practically, uh, up until very recent uh, times, were were named with Christian names. Uh, uh, Jesus, Trinity, uh, uh, St. John's, uh, uh, Christ, Corpus Christi, etc., etc. St. Catherine's, the one that I was at. So it, it was a civilization, not just a, a university, but a civilization which had its, its roots, its foundation in the Christian faith, in the biblical uh, convictions, etc. And yet, as evangelicals, it seems to me we are sadly lacking in an understanding of the elements that went to make up that civilization, which, at the very least, it was not solely this, but at the very least included a Christian mind. So the whole idea of a university, for example, like Cambridge, came out of that very conviction. And as a result of that, um, influenced the entire uh, society. So there's another great, great irony. How, how is it that, that we, as the natural heirs of the reforms, let's say, of the, ref, uh, of the uh, Puritans in terms of our theology, how is it that we don't understand this? Such power in that, in that, uh, in that period of time, uh, what Carlyle described as a, an age of heroes, and yet, and yet we are, are hardly aware of the elements that went to make up that, that revolution. And finally, the, the third uh, uh, irony is that uh, around us is a culture which is intellectually bankrupt by its own admission. That's not just Christians trying to be rude about it. Uh, the, the postmodern confession is this, as one of their, their leading uh, spokesmen uh, put it, one of their leading writers put it, is nihilism with a smile. In other words, they have come to the conclusion it's just an extension from existentialism uh, in the 50s and 60s when I was a student, and Sartre and Camus, those names, you know, they were the big names at the time. And, uh, it's simply an extension of that. There, there was the, uh, the theatre of the absurd. I, I met somebody yesterday in, in, um, in Cardiff uh, who actually met Gionesco, and I remember seeing uh, the play of Gionesco as a, just a, a young student, and uh, it was called Exit the King. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the subject of that play is, is really where everyone is today, um, The king dies, well, he doesn't die, literally. He disappears. The throne turns at 360 degrees. It was Alec Guinness in the the lead role. And uh, the king represents us, man, mankind. And uh, the last uh, scene is of the the throne. He's lost his whole kingdom. The walls have fallen down and he's been invaded, etc. The tragedy of the modern world, right? Intellectually, no answers. And before it's come around, 360 degrees, there was no king on the throne. And that's just one illustration of many of this uh, uh, conclusion that the culture has come to. So, so my point is this. What an irony. 
that you, that you have the non-Christian culture admitting its bankruptcy intellectually. And we, who are the heirs of those who actually laid the foundations of this remarkable civilization, so that you can have someone like uh, uh, John Roberts, professor of, uh, um, of history uh, in Southampton when he made that, that uh, documentary series called The Triumph of the West. It wasn't intended to be chauvinistic. He was just saying, here is a fact. There has never been a civilization as potent as this. Right? And, and, and he traces it back. He actually takes you back. One of the first sh- uh, shots in the, in the documentary is of him going back to Monte Cassino, uh, the, the first group of, of monks in the early 6th century uh, with Benedict, the beginning of the beginning. He says, this is where it all began. A Christian root to the entire civilization. How is it that we cannot mount an intellectual response to this? Do you see the irony? A profound irony. Now, compare this with the intellectual confidence and courage of Paul there in that passage that we were looking at in Acts 25. And uh, we don't have time, sadly, there's so much for us uh, to deal with. And incidentally, I didn't ask you, John, how much time we've got. I get my I clock out. Is it now? Is it now? Eight minutes to eight. It is, yeah. isn't it? Well, I think at least until eight minutes to nine. Okay. And well, if the, no. If you'd like to go on for a few minutes. And are, do we have a chance to have some conversation? Yes. Afterwards? Okay. Well, I, I'll try I, to make it well before that. No. Yeah. We'd rather listen to you than. No, to no, 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 no. That's very kind of you, but um, uh, we don't have time to look at it in detail. But ju- ju- you know why I stopped the reading? I asked John to read just to verse eight is because here was an intellectual, all right, let's use a word which is uh, a little bit more uh, uh, pointed, uh, philosophical bombshell in the Greco-Roman world into which Paul was speaking. So he's in the public arena, he's, been, he's defending himself before Agrippa and the Roman governor Festus, and he drops this intellectual bombshell. Would that we could drop bombshells like this in our, own, in, our own, in our own moment in history. Why should any of you think it strange that God should raise the dead? Oh, but you can think of the Greek mind saying, but God can't raise the dead. I mean, there, there, there isn't such an idea within the Greek world. The spirit continued, the body was, was nothing. It was like an envelope that is discarded and you read the letter, Right? That was their view. So to say something like that was ridiculous. But his point is this. If God actually exists and is the biblical God who has created all things, including our puny little bodies, precious bodies, but puny little bodies relative to the whole of the universe, why should you think it's strange that God should raise the dead? He created it in the first place. Do you see the the significance of the thing? Later on, just to make it even stronger, when Festus blurts out, and you can imagine this uh, official, um, a very urbane uh, gentleman, and uh, frustrated by listening to this man who's got these weird ideas, and he blurts out and says, Festus, you're mad. Your great learning is turning you mad. And what does Paul say? Again, you see, it's a bombshell. I am not mad, most excellent Festus. I speak words, and the Greek is very clear, of truth and rationality. Now, that word rationality is a no-no in the modern world. 
They have given up on reason. That's why my father-in-law, Francis Schaeffer, wrote one of his first books was called Escape from Reason. Why? Because that's why I meant by, by saying that we are living in a, in a culture which has admitted its own intellectual bankruptcy. Because following on from the beginning point back in the Enlightenment, when they said you don't need God, you don't need revelation, they followed it through logically, very logically, and they came to the conclusion, which they should have seen at the beginning, and that is that then no one can have any definite answers to anything. Because even if you added all the human minds together, who would be able to tell you what the whole thing was and how it had begun and what was right and wrong? That is the, is the, is the confession of the modern world. And hence, rationality is down the tube. Sadly, when you hear many evangelicals, you'd think that they, they, they agree with that. Don't worry too much about the mind, they'd say. Don't be distracted. Get on with the job of evangelism. Important as evangelism is. I'm not decrying it. But you see, it's this disparagement of the mind, which even today one finds, which is so discouraging. To the contrary, what you find Paul saying is, listen, Festus, I'm not mad. What I'm speaking are words of truth. It really is true. It is the reality in which we are living. We are not living in a universe which just came out of nowhere. We're living in a universe where God is the center of all reality. And our reality is a small reality, a small r, and his is the big reality. It's not the other way around. If he were not there, we would not be here. It is not that we have invented God, as the Enlightenment philosophers said. Do you see the confidence and the courage, the boldness that he has? I speak words of truth, and I think the RSV said sound sense, rationality. In other words, when you believe this, when you understand that we have been made in the image of God, that there is a creator, that he has given us his law, that we are saved, it makes sense of the whole of reality. Without that, no sense. Exit the king. Uh, Sartre, uh, that was Gionesco, Sartre, no exit, and so on. So th- these ironies are my, you know, my expression of that same sadness that uh, Blemeyer expresses when he says, and he, he, he points out that uh, when you start to talk like this, it's, you can't avoid sounding melodramatic. Because it has, it has been such a disaster that the church has withdrawn from the intellectual debate so seriously. Now, I've got three main topics. They are these. First of all, the neglect of the Christian mind, just a few words on that. The necessity of a Christian mind and the nature of a Christian mind. Ca- trying to describe the characteristics and how we go about developing a Christian mind. But first, two introductory comments, quickly. The first is... I'm very conscious that this is, a, if you like, a, a subject full of uh, complexity and also to uh, danger. And the verse that comes or ought to come into all of our minds is, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. The Christian mind. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. And we can very easily fall into the trap of becoming so 
interested and, and uh, concerned and involved in intellectual things that actually we become arrogant in the process. Now, please, don't misunderstand me. We, we're, being, we're going to be concentrating on the intellectual issues tonight, but this is just one aspect of the whole life. I mean, here's another verse. Again, one of the classic verses of the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which you find in Christ Jesus. And, and so the mind, when we talk about the mind intellectually, is the same mind as is involved. It isn't a different person. There's not sort of a, a, a schizophrenia here where you have an intellectual person and then you have a person who is aiming to follow Jesus as the servant who gave his life for us, became obedient even unto death, have this mind in you. Th these are not two different things. It is the same mind. And if we lose that sense of integration as we talk about all the intellectual things as we are tonight, we have made a very serious mistake. So that's the first uh, thing, the, the danger involved in this, a cautionary word at the very start. We're not looking for a new intellectualism, a new fashion you know, let's all go and get university degrees, etc. All we're saying is this. God has made it very clear that our minds, as with all of our, our being, must be given to him and we must love him with our minds. That's, that's all we're saying. Okay. The second is sort of a motivational thing is to realize the importance of the subject. Just a few days ago, we were all remembering... The, uh, uh, the uh, dismantling of the uh, Berlin Wall, correct? Tenth anniversary, this momentous occasion. I can remember distinctly having conversations at Libri with students and uh, talking about Marxism, etc., and then thinking, well, no, nothing could change that. I mean, just this massive, this monstrous uh, uh, evil... Uh, this, this prison, almost literally prison, with a big, huge, big wall with people being shot if they try to get through it. Right? And then it collapsed. Thank God it did. But my point is this. That wall was there. That devastation was caused simply because of ideas. Karl Marx was sitting in the, in the British Museum Library in London writing a book that book went out into the world and it produced that bitter fruit, Marxism. <clears throat> and the Bible has exactly the same theme. It says, listen, ideas are really important. They, they may not seem physical, you know, like the chair is physical, the motor car is physical, uh, the space rocket is physical, and it, it may not seem as significant, but let me tell you, says the whole of the word of God, that is the deciding factor. Ideas have consequences, like a stone dropped in a pool and the ripples keep going. And the devastation in Eastern Europe to this day, okay, the Berlin Wall has come down, and what do we see? Not a lot better, is it? Yeah. The devastation has come from ideas. Hence, at the very beginning, what went wrong? Eve believed a lie. Isn't that right? And then when you come through the whole of the, the uh, 
the Pentateuch, you have God saying to the people through Moses, listen, don't turn away from the truth. It's going to destroy you. And so on all the way through until Jesus says magisterially, if you continue in my words, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, physically, physically, it is going to make a huge difference. And we see that. I alluded to the civilization of which we are a part. You can see a dramatic contrast, for example, between the Iberian countries, which didn't have the Reformation, and the countries which did have the Reformation, where even though it was not done perfectly, it was poorly done in many respects. The Bible was set at the center of, of, of uh, the, uh, the, the cultural life, and it set people free. We had the rule of law. We enjoyed a degree of freedom which was completely unknown in other civilizations and cultures. And this point has been made by non-Christians. In other words, we're not being partisan when we say this. It's just obvious. So... We, we, must, we must come to this subject realizing that it is really important. And wh whoever you are, of whatever your age, it is important that you start to think about the issues and start to encourage other people. It, it's going to be daunting to us all. Uh, I remember when I got embarked on the whole thing, I thought, oh, wow, what a huge mountain. Of course, it still appears as a mountain because there is so much to, to understand. But we, one starts to get, get going and then little by little... We encourage each other, and uh, we get started. So now, let, let me get to the first thing, the neglect of the Christian mind. We actually are standing in a tradition which goes back, I'm speaking now as evangelicals, to the late, later part of the, of the uh, 18th century. Excuse me, the 17th century. Uh, 1685, I think it was, uh, when a little book was uh, brought out in Germany by a man called Jakob Spener, uh, called Collegia uh, Pietatis. No, sorry, that, that was, that was, those were the assemblies. Uh, they started these little groups, what we would call house groups, Collegia, colleges, Collegia Pietatis. And he wrote an introduction to a book in which he was pleading for renewal of the church. The church had got stuck, it had got very um, uh, stultified uh, and... Uh, uh, very intellectual, the sermons, no one could understand the sermons, and so on. And so they were looking for renewal, and it was very, very positive and constructive. But in the process of that renewal movement, sadly, they emphasized the heart at the expense of the mind. And that really was the, the seedbed of this anti-intellectualism, which because gradually, as the renewal movement went on, within a few generations... It was all heart, very little mind. And that went on right on through into the, into the 18th century, the 19th century, and uh, uh, finally uh, uh, peaked in what was called fundamentalism. Uh, that is where people were saying, don't read books, you know, don't, don't, don't look at those, t uh, don't go to university even. I mean, some great evangelists were saying publicly in these huge big mass rallies, don't go to, to universities, they're places of the devil. Now, of course, they were in a certain sense. You know, that was, that was towards the end of the 19th century. That was when we had begun to lose it in, in, in terms of the, the battle with humanism. But uh, that anti-intellectualism 
has been part of our evangelical tradition for a long time. That's all I'm saying. So we need to work hard to reverse it. Now then someone might say, but, but haven't we already started to do that? And in a way we have. And uh, the Lausanne uh, Covenant, which was in uh, 1974, is an expression of that. There was a deliberate turning away from that anti-intellectualism. Carl Henry uh, was involved in that uh, in the United States. Uh, people like John Stott and Jim Packer here. And for all of that, we are profoundly thankful. All I'm saying is, and it's, it's a subject in its own right to speak about this, is that we haven't yet really got our act together despite that. And hence Vieth's comment in 93 that we, we haven't really made any impact on the public life of our countries. And some people in the United States are so discouraged after all that they've done, they've done much more than we have in terms of, let's say, the abortion, the pro-life issues, that they really are wanting to just climb like, like rabbits back into their holes. They are discouraged. <coughs> And hence, the, uh, the book by Chuck Colson, which incidentally is dedicated to my father-in-law, Francis Schaeffer, which has just come out, and it's called How Shall We Now Live? And really the burden that Chuck Colson has is this. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because he sees this process going on of evangelicals having mounted, tried to mount a really serious um, uh, protest against all the erosion of, of Christian values, etc., in, in, in public life, in academic life, etc. And he sees them now giving up and wanting to withdraw. I commend that book to you again, Chuck Colson, uh, How Shall We Now Live? I think it's published by Navigators, but I'm not quite sure. So we have this neglect, and we have a long way to catch up. I don't say that to be discouraging, but just to be realistic. And uh, if we don't do it, who is going to do it? If you're members of a church, are you, are you making this uh, point uh, clearly to your leaders? Are, are you, are you, you know, hearing them and uh, assessing whether they are taking uh, responsibility? If you are leaders yourselves, are you encouraging young people in this direction? Are you, for example... Uh, getting tapes and making them available, if you feel unable yourself to do this, are you ensuring that there is a facility there that people can make use of? I remember, for example, being at a meeting that Lloyd-Jones was uh, leading in, uh, in London, and it was, it was very moving and, and really quite tragic. A young fellow had come back from university. This is in the, uh, I suppose it was about the end of the 60s, and uh, he said, I've come home from university, I've had all these intellectual questions dumped in my lap and I've been to my elders and no one can help me. So what do I do? Now that situation shouldn't, shouldn't exist. We ought in all of our churches to be providing ways that where people, when they have questions, can find answers. We have people coming through Labrie in droves, literally, even to this day, They've been in their churches, good, solid evangelical churches in different countries, in Europe, in the States, in Australia, etc. They've had questions. In the churches, no answer. So the neglect. The second is the necessity. When we say that there is the need for a Christian mind to be developed, we are not now just talking pragmatically. By that I mean, you know, we say, 
wow, it looks bad out there. We better do something so to, to patch it all up. No, no, no. The reason why we are saying we need to develop a Christian mind, in, and more than that, that there is a necessity for us to do that, is because God's word teaches it. Did you all hear me? It's because God's word teaches it. I am an evangelical. Uh, whatever persuasion you have, all of us as Christians ought to be going back to the Bible as our authority, as John said earlier. The Bible is our authority. And when we look at it, what do we find? Do we find a commendation of the Christian mind or do we not? Are we inventing this? Is this a fashion that's come along with Carl Henry and uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer and so on and, and you know, really is a little bit off the track? That's the question I want to ask. Now, I would divide it into two parts. The explicit teaching of the Bible and the implicit. I, I'm running because we've got a lot of material to work through. Uh, just explicitly, you have these very clear statements like Jesus' summary of the law. Uh, if you want a text, it's Luke chapter 10, verse 27, if you're making a note. Um, reflecting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, uh, Jesus sums up the law, and he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And what could be clearer from Jesus' own mouth? You must love God with your mind. He, he doesn't mean a sort of spiritual thing. No, no. He means your mind, your brain, your, the application intellectually you're to love him. And Benedict reflects this wonderfully in, 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 in a prayer, the famous prayer of, uh, of Benedict. He says, uh, Lord, uh, give us um, wisdom to perceive thee, intelligence to understand thee. We must, we, we must apply our minds. And hence leads me straight into Romans chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now please remember, as I said at the beginning, that we're not getting lopsided, okay? This is not divorced from all the rest of us, our life. But here you have explicit commands about the importance of the Word of God. I personally, though, find that the implicit teaching of the Bible, that is where it isn't spelling it out like that, but where it's just, you can just see it. It's kind of like I, I use the illustration of the warp and woof of a material. And you just see it's just part of the fabric of the whole of the Word of God. So, for example, uh, you find Paul as he goes around in the, in the Greco-Roman world, and wherever he goes, he reasons with people. If they're Jews, well, he reasons with them out of the scriptures. If they're, not, if they're Gentiles, he, he reasons with them on other grounds. Like, for example, he, he says to the Greeks when he goes to Athens, he says, uh, you know, this is crazy. Why are you people thinking this? Why are you doing this? You know, worshipping a God you don't know. Even your own poets and philosophers can tell you that this is dumb. Do, do you remember the passage? Acts 17. And he says, uh, he quotes and he says, in him we live and move and have our very being. I mean, that's not quoting the Bible. That's quoting one of their Greek writers, do you see? And he says, now, if that's the case, in him we live and move and have our very being. But how can you be making idols, you see, out of material <coughs> objects? So even of the mind of an unbeliever, a non-Christian, is respected. So great is the respect 
for the person, the image that God has made in us as human beings. I could mention many others, but I'm running through. The final uh, thing, which to me is is overwhelmingly um, conclusive, is just this, the book itself. I mean, just stop and think about that for a moment. We're in the dark. We, we don't know the way, all of us. We are sinners. We've turned each way, each to his own way. And, and we, 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 need, we need to know what the, the way is, what the light is. And God has chosen a book. And, of course, the book is the written word and Jesus is the living word. But there is no conflict between the two. They, they cannot be separated, can they? in a certain sense. And that's why Jesus says, listen, at the end, you're going to be judged by the word, this one. Didn't you read what Moses said? Now, do you see the implication of that is this, that God so respects our minds and anticipates that we will use our minds that the communication he gives to us is to the mind. You cannot understand God's word to us without reading it, which involves your mind. Now, again, I'm, it's not as if that's the end of the, of the matter. There's, there's the humbling, the humility, and so now we're coming towards the formation, the nature of a Christian mind. And the first of, of seven items that I want to, to, to list is humility, humble. By that I mean something very specific. I don't just mean the feeling of being humble or a sort of a superficial attitude of being humble. I mean humble in a very deliberate, very narrow sense, and that is that we acknowledge that we are completely stuck apart from God's written word. Humble in that sense. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the the meaning, the significance of that is that if we want to understand, if we want to develop a Christian mind, we start at this point that we listen to what God has said. Now, really, I wish we had time to then expound carefully 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, because that is the subject uh, that uh, Paul is dealing with there. Remember, he says the, the, the Greeks seek wisdom, uh, the Jews demand a sign, uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. That's that whole passage. Sadly, we don't have time for that. Just let me comment as I go as we run by, that in chapter 2, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now, this has been taken as a text by by many uh, evangelicals over the last century, let's let's say, uh, as saying this, that Paul is saying, I determined to know nothing among you, I determined not to know anything about philosophy, and just to preach Jesus Christ. As if it's sort of a a text for anti-intellectualism. I've heard this from many, many people. Now, Paul couldn't possibly be saying that because as he was in Corinth, for example, he was writing the letter to the Romans. And as he wrote the letter to the Romans, you remember how it starts, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Then what does he go on to say? Very like the passage that I referred to in Acts 26, and he's talking to Festus. 
Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness, men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. It, it's completely the opposite way around. Paul, Paul has absolutely no uh, confusion at this point. It is God's word that is true, and it is Greek thinking, Aristotle, Plato, the whole lot, which is foolishness, <coughs> intellectual foolishness. That really, if you want to understand where Schaefer was coming from as you read his books, he wasn't just trying to be clever. He is simply expressing that idea from Romans chapter 1. The foolishness of all non-Christian thought, beginning with a presupposition, let's say the Hindu, uh, for example, or the Greek, or the modern humanist in the West, you know, materialistic uh, philosophy, that when you begin with a, a, a beginning point other than the Word of God, which starts with the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, creation, fall, salvation, when you begin anywhere else, you will end up in a pit. Or to use Jeremiah's illustration, you know, it's like making a, a, a cistern and knocking a hole in the bottom. You pour the water in here, it goes out the bottom. I mean, just look at the efforts of our society today to try to patch it all up. Pour money into this. Pour money into that. Get the bombers out. Not, no solutions. No solutions. The solutions come from the Word of God. And you see, that's what I mean by humble. That when we set out and we're saying, now listen, we want to develop a Christian mind. Now, now where do we start? We have to start with where the Bible starts. With the God who is not only there, uh, but who has revealed himself in the, in the, in the scriptures. The, I, I can't uh, pass by this, even though, please bear with me, it, it is such an exciting thing to me that I have discovered recently. But uh, I've been increasingly interested in... in this conflict between Greek thought and Christian thought. You know, it's one of the big subjects as you look at the history of the church, how the early church fathers got stuck in Greek philosophy. Uh, somebody like Augustine, you remember, he, he, got, he was very heavily into, into Plato and so on. And then Aquinas later on very much into Aristotle. And so this question has been buzzing around in my mind about Christianity and Greek philosophy, and I've only just begun scratching the surface in this, suddenly I come across John chapter 12, and the Greeks want to see Jesus. Do you remember that? Do you remember John chapter 12? And they said, we would like to see Jesus. And then Jesus makes this, this you know, wonderful statement, so simple. We, we ought to be looking at it and examining it carefully, but we don't have time. He says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, all the Greek thinking, which is trying to get an intellectual answer to things, is worthless. And Jesus doesn't mean to say that Plato or Aristotle didn't say anything that was true. But in terms of giving an answer, no, sir. If you want an answer, Jesus is saying, you have to start with this. God has got to come and save you. Now, of course, he was the Son of Man, but that's what he says. The time has come 
for the Son of Man to come and rescue us. So that's the first, in a way, the most important thing. Because if we're rushing around and burying our heads in this book and that book and all this, the philosophies and the issues, etc., and we haven't understood that, we really cannot begin to develop a Christian mind. All right? The second is this, that we must be convinced even to the extent of being excited. I mean, don't, don't you hear this in Paul? And he, you just can't hold him back. He is just so thrilled with the, the, the truth of God's word. He has experienced it, but he, I mean, intellectually. And that's why he comes to the end of uh, his, his, uh, his uh, uh, exposition of the Christian faith in Romans 12, and he just stands aghast uh, uh, and just says, what, what amazing wisdom has come from God. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom of God. So no wonder he, get, he, gets, he gets up in front of Festus and Felix. He says quite carefully, outside there were fightings, inside there were fears. It wasn't easy for him. It was very hard for him. It was so hard on, on, on the occasion that he was in, in Asia that he says, we were so utterly unbearably crushed we despaired even of life. It wasn't easy for Paul to go and do all of this and go and stand up there in front of the Greek philosophers in Athens. But he is fearless. He is just so convinced that it is true. Do you see what I'm saying? So now we must come to that. If we haven't come to that, then we must try, we must do all we can to help one another to that. Now, I found Schaefer very, very helpful. I must, I've said this to you probably uh, when I came 10 years ago or on one of the other occasions. But uh, when I became a Christian at Cambridge my first weekend, the way I pictured what had happened was like this. I was soundly converted, thank God, but I, I had terrible fears that intellectually I'd walk around a corner, you know, in Cambridge, uh, and uh, suddenly my little face would just get swallowed up by a monster. I, I mean an intellectual monster, you know, that I'd suddenly realize, oh, no, I believed this thing and I thought it was true, and bloop, gone. <laughs> Have any of you had that feeling? Yeah. Well, I'm not saying that one doesn't have any doubts and, and one doesn't have any uh, questions left. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But the, the Bible teaches us quite clearly that we should come to a conviction about the truth that is solid, stable, immovable, intellectually. And you see that in Paul. And I'm just saying that, Schaefer, I'm urging you to... I'm just trying to throw out some ideas for you. I've mentioned Blaine Myers and others. Um, but uh, Schaefer is, is a very helpful guide still to this day. I mean, why would Chuck Colson be dedicating a book and almost using the same title as one of Schaefer's books? He actually said that to all the... When he spoke at a very big conference in the States, he said, here's something remarkable. We had a prophet in our midst. He wore funny breeches... And, uh, and we put him up on the stage and uh, we all clapped and we didn't pay any attention. That was about 1995, I think. So now he's written this, this book and trying to say, listen, man, this is really... He's not trying to draw attention to Schaefer. Don't misunderstand me. This is all biblical truth, right? And then applying it to this day. But if you want help in developing a Christian mind, then I do commend... 
Schaefer to you. The third is a very important characteristic as we think of the nature of a Christian mind, and that is an open mind. And I, I, I want to use a little illustration here. Uh, you're like you're standing on top of a mountain, and uh, I've only done it on two or three occasions when we were living in Switzerland, but when you get up to the top of the mountain, it is so wonderful. You look around 360 degrees. It's so wonderful. You know, you have this wonderful panorama. Well, that is what a Christian mind is, is trying to do, is to look at the whole of reality with God's eyes, as it were, and to say, now, now what would God think of this? And, and what would he think of that? And so on. Do you see what I mean? And um, not that we can do it all. Obviously, I mean, we're so tiny and puny. But that's what we're intended to. Now, do, do you think there's a biblical text for that? Is this just me being crazy? You go to the last verses of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and you'll read this. The spiritual man, and obviously Paul means the spiritual man and woman, the spiritual man judges all things. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. Does he mean we've become Jesus? No, no, no. He's just spelled it out already. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Yeah. He says, well, who understands the internal reality of each one of us? You, you can't see what's actually going on inside me right now. But, but my spirit knows that. And he uses that analogy and he says, God's spirit has made the truth known to us. Uh, how? Preeminently in Jesus. So Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Right? So, obviously this is not just Jesus. It is the whole of God's truth of which Jesus is the apex, the point. The whole point of God's word is pointing to Jesus. The purpose of God's word is to point to Jesus. So he is the fulfillment of it. But when Paul says we have the mind of Christ, that's what he means. We have God's revelation, the whole counsel of God, and therefore on the basis of that we can judge all things. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we get it all right, but that's what we are able to do as we are led by his spirit and as we understand his word. I'm sorry I'm going along rather slowly here. Uh, let me just say before I leave that, that the analog- the, the, uh, this is the parallel of what we were created to be. If you like, the corollary. What do we read in Genesis 1? Let us make man in our own image. You will have dominion over everything. Over all the animals, the birds, etc., etc. So this is simply the corollary of that. That we have dominion, and therefore we ought to understand it. And believe me, this is what fired the early scientists. The the modern scientists. Uh, uh, I'm very involved in the Round Church in Cambridge. I wish I could tell you about that. It's very exciting what's going on. But just down the road are the rooms where this young man came, Isaac Newton. And uh, he was an absolute genius. And there you can just see the rooms, they're right on the road there, where he worked on his wonderful book, Principia Mathematica, which came out in 1687. He was so bright, 
his teacher, who incidentally had brought him to a living faith, Sir Isaac Barrow, his statue is also in Trinity College uh, um, Chapel, resigned so that Isaac Newton could become the professor. And he became the second Lucasian professor. Uh, Stephen Hawking is the present Lucasian professor in Cambridge. Now, what's the point of my saying this? I mean, here is someone who actually says, he actually put it in his own words, that he felt like he was a little schoolboy out on the, on the, on the beach, uh, picking up pebbles and examining them. He's just looking at God's wonderful creation. Robert Boyle, Boyle's Law, wrote a book called The Christian Virtuoso, meaning that the Christian scientist is a virtuoso and can tell you the wonders, what, of his intelligence? No, of God's wonderful creation, written in about 1693. So the, the, um, the panoramic view that we should have, now obviously you'll be interested in one subject, maybe music, and then I'll be interested in um, uh, what, what history, let's say, and somebody else in sociology and somebody in medicine and so on and so forth. Anthropology. Obviously, we aren't, can't all do the whole thing, but we can encourage each other. And we in Labrie have every day a discussion meal. So we have about 35 people staying with us. They divide into three, uh, each, eating, each group eating in a different household, five households, rotate around. And we just stay. Listen, we're not going to have uh, chit-chat. We're going to talk about something. Well, what would you like to talk about? And then we have an hour, an hour and a half of discussion. And it can be about anything. Sport, you know, I, not, not meaning sport, uh, who won the World Cup. Uh, <laughs> but, but what is the place of sport today in our society? Has it become a religion? Has it become an idol? You know, things like that. Or somebody might say, you know, I've been reading this book and I don't understand. Can you help me to understand it? Uh, one of the first things I said to my, my dear wife, uh, Susan, when she was no, not my wife, uh, and uh, I'd been listening to her father and uh, not understanding very much. And I, I collared her on one occasion. She was studying in Oxford doing um, occupational therapy. And I said, Susan, your dad talks about existentialism all the time. Uh, could you just help me to understand what existentialism is? Now, she, she did her best. Um, and that's what I mean. We, we, all try, we can help each other to understand. Do you see what I mean? Now, what do, you, do you all know what existentialism is? I'm just joking. The, 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 uh, it, it's not complicated. Really, believe me, it's not complicated. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very, there are some very simple ideas. But so that we help each other. But we all of us have this panoramic view. That's the, the third. The fourth is a very important one. I want to use a diagram now. And that is discerning. Because we have a problem. And it runs like this. If the Bible is our authority, okay, and we're looking at a subject, um, let's say modern music, and we want to say, well, we, we really would like to know what should we think about all of this, or modern art, or developments in politics. Uh, we were talking about Marxism, etc. How do we go about things like that which aren't explicitly mentioned in the Bible? You could ask it another way. Do we have an authority for our conclusions if it isn't in the Bible? 
Now, I think there is a very simple way to come at this, and that is that we have to distinguish between direct and indirect information that we get from the Word of God. And uh, we must make this distinction very carefully because if we don't, then we will get into a situation where we think that all our ideas have to be right. And we can have, uh, make, make a, a, a lot of uh, difficulty for people. Because in the area where the Bible is not explicit, it's not that we can't have very definite conclusions, but we must be very careful to say, well, these are things which we have deduced on the basis of what God has given us in Scripture, which is clear. Now let me have the uh, illustration, Simon. I hope this comes up clearly enough. I was speaking in an auditorium in the States in, um, in the Midwest, and the auditorium looked something like that. It was a very impressive sort of uh, Greco-Roman uh, building. And uh, there was a skylight, and there was this beautiful big dome. And uh, there weren't a lot of windows. You know, that was the, the point of the whole thing. It was very impressive. And the, the light came through these skylights. But the, and on this occasion, the light was just beaming through from this one skylight into the room. And the room was actually full of light. It was very, very wonderful. And that gave me the, the uh, 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 idea of illustrating this distinction. Because when you read the Bible, do you see the green rays coming down? Uh, the, the light was coming directly only into a small part of the room. It hit the, the floor there, as I've uh, bracketed it. That is like the Word of God, which deals with specific things. You know, let's say, the history of Israel. It tells you where it began, goes back, Abraham, you know, Moses, and so on and so forth. It tells you geographical details, Egypt, Palestine, etc. Does it tell you about South America? Does it tell you about Japanese civilization or Indian civilization? No, it doesn't. Well, so how could you assess that? And my point is this, that the teaching of God's word is so bright that when it shines down into reality, although it's not dealing with all of reality directly, it actually lights it all up so we can understand some more clearly than other things. Some more clearly than other things. And so I want to try to, to explain a little bit about that. Thank you, Simon. That's, that's helpful. And I think the, um, the, uh, the way to get at it is, is, to, is to, first of all, um, realize that the, the basic truths of Christianity are clear and straightforward. And what we call the creedal statements. That's why we stand up in church and we say, I believe in one, two, three, four. So there's no question about that. We may have our differences in terms of emphasis and so on, but the creedal statements, without those, you would have no Christianity. But now how about the assessment of Japanese culture, let's say? You may wonder why I'm talking about that, but uh, it was an interest that I had at the time of the economic, you know, the uh, dominance, well, not dominance, but tremendous uh, uh, power that Japan had a short while back. And so uh, how does one think about that? Why, why was there this Japanese miracle economically? Where's it coming from? And whatever one's interests, in areas like that, 
How do you get at it? Now, I think the first thing to do is that you've got to start to fill in background information. Try to re uh, get as much uh, information about Japan as you can. So I started to get books out of the library and read about, and I discovered about the Meiji Restoration in, uh, 1680, in 1867 and so on. And suddenly you begin to see the picture a bit more clearly. You get it when you get the history. You're getting more of the background. And uh, then, as you want to see that, then you come with these clear principles of God's word about who God is, what morality is, and then you look at Japanese. I don't have anything against Japan. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just, just here as a, a phenomenon. I mean, just think of this phenomenon. Until the Meiji Restoration in 1687, since I've got onto this subject, uh, Japan had, had excluded the rest of the world. There was what was called the Edict of Exclusion. Uh, in the early part of the 17th century, they just stopped. They just didn't let any foreigners come into Japan. Foreigners were pouring into China, and they just said, none here. They let the Dutch have a little island, and they traded with the Dutch, and no one else was allowed in. Until... The Meiji Restoration, which was a sort of a coup, uh, a coup d'etat, and uh, the king, who's called Meiji, the emperor, was restored. That's why it's called the Meiji Restoration. And then they just took off. And already by the early part of the 20th century, they were able to defeat the Russian navy. So they had no modern ships until, until 1867, then they were able to take on the, the navy. And then you went through, and then you had the, uh, the First World War, Second World War, and uh, they were defeated. In a very, very short time, you saw lots of Japanese cars on the road here in England. I mean, that's a phenomenon. How do you explain it? What's going on? So you then come with the biblical view, the things which are clear, the direct information, and then you start to see and begin to try to understand it. And I think as you do that, you gradually get more of an idea. I get it. I see. I see why there was this combination of tremendous inhumanity. There was no inhumanity greater in the Second World War than the Japanese. And yet they won't admit it. Why? Well, it's all tied up with their religion. Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun, they are the great, you know, the nation. They don't have a moral absolute. They have no moral absolutes. It's a shame-based culture. You, you haven't done something wrong because it's wrong before God, you know, like, as in the, in the Jewish, Judeo-Christian tradition. It's because you've let down your family or something. So then you commit harakiri. You, you, you tear out your guts and die. You commit suicide. Now, I, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just saying, here we live in a world where these sorts of things are going on. What about the genocide in, in Africa? What about abortion in our own countries? How do we understand these things? Now, this brings me to another important subject. You won't find abortion mentioned in the Bible. Does that mean that we don't have anything that we can say about abortion? Well, no, obviously not, because just following on from this idea of getting more background and then seeing how God's light shines on the issue, you start off with Genesis 1 and what do you have? Already you've got enough. Genesis 1.26, let us make man, male and female, in our own image. 
And John Roberts actually uses the expression, as a result of that, this man who made the, the documentary, The Triumph of the West, and he says, already there, you had in each individual... Now, this is a man who's not trying to write a Christian book, right? It's a documentary for the BBC. The infinite value of the individual soul. I'm quoting. That's his, 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 the way he describes it. Already you've got that. Then you go on and then you have the explicit uh, condemnation of killing, of murder, which is repeated very, very strongly throughout the, uh, the Pentateuch, but you just take Genesis 9, or you can take the life of an animal, but you may not take the life of another human being. Right? Then you go through the whole of the Old Testament, you see over and over and over again the preciousness of children. Blessed is the person who's got lots of children. They're like arrows in the quiver, etc. You remember the, the And the preciousness of children. So it's not surprising that in the Jewish world, the Jewish thinking, they never had, they, 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 abomin they abominated uh, abortion as over against the pagan cultures around them where it was practiced. <clears throat> then you come to the New Testament. The word of God, the son of God appears and what does he say? It would be better for a person to have a stone tied around his neck and thrown in the depth of the sea than to hurt one of these little ones. Suffer the little children to come to me for they are the, the, of the kingdom of God. Now, when you've put all that together, do you see where I'm trying to give an illustration of this point? When you take the light shining brightly, even though you don't have a, a text which says, thou shalt not commit abortion, right? It does say, thou shalt not commit murder, and abortion is murder. And that's why our law until 1967 reflected that. And an abortionist was culpable in the same way that a murderer is culpable. So do you see how I'm trying to illustrate? You could think of another subject like poverty. It distresses me how evangelicals so often just reflect the thinking of the culture and there's this famine someplace and then, well, the answer is, well, let's send money out there. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't send money. Uh, the biblical uh, teaching is very clear on compassion and caring for people but what I find missing, that's all, this is the, the point I'm making, what I find missing so often is any emphasis on the correlation between false ideas, false religion, and poverty. You hardly ever hear that mentioned. It's right there in the Word of God. You worship an idol, you'll become like it. In other words, you will suffer. That's the message of the Bible. And now, how this, how this affects our working into this whole subject is a complex thing. And naturally, there are people who go and, uh, and give money and so on and, and uh, seek to relieve the, the tremendous need. But, but what about the other side of the equation? And what you found in England in the recent past is more and more money being given for aid and less and less for missionaries. So the missionary societies have really suffered. Now, th these are the sorts of things we have to ask. Now, there, there's so much more on each of these things, and I hope, as we discuss, we can, uh, we can go, go through these. Could I have, Simon, the other diagram, just to sort of bring us along, just so you can have a recap, and then I'm nearly done. I'm just going to hurry through the last questions. 
uh, uh, three items. Thank you. The first is a humble mind. 1 Corinthians 2 6. Excited about truth, convinced. Romans 1 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Panoramic, Genesis 1 28. And discerning. Now I'll just run through the uh, discerning in the sense of you know, applying the clear light of Scripture to issues which we don't have de- uh, dealt with in the Word of God. And now fifthly, uh, patient. There's a wonderful illustration in, uh, in Philippians uh, when Paul is in prison and there were some Christians who disagreed with him on something. Do you remember it? It's not, we're not quite clear what that was. And they were making trouble for this poor man. He was an apostle, he's in prison, and their disagreement was causing him difficulty. But he says, I don't mind, the gospel is being preached. It wasn't a difference over a fundamental, he was patient, and he looked for God's solution in the end. That sort of attitude of patience we must have, because we are going to disagree with each other in these areas where the Bible is not explicit, and we're trying to develop a Christian mind about things like sport, is it an idolatry, TV, motor cars, these are all issues. That I mean, uh, Meiji restoration, Japanese culture, art, etc., etc. We're bound to have disagreements, okay? And we cannot go to a text and say, look, there I am right and you're wrong. And it's a matter of discussing it and weighing it up. I'm saying the attitude we are to have is patient with each other, not getting into a scrap. The, the apostles are very clear about this, that we should be gentle with each other as we talk about it. And that's what we try to do at these table discussions, you know. And people get very angry, and they say, wow, why do you say that? Try to be patient, quiet, and calm with each other. I, I'm, I'm a very impatient person, you can see that. Uh, number six, um, we have to be creative. That passage, Luke chapter 7, is the passage where uh, John the Baptist, you remember, he's, he's wondering, is Jesus the, the one? And he, he sends his disciples, his followers, to go to Jesus, and, and Jesus just says, look, the, the blind are seeing, the lame can walk, the deaf are hearing. Yeah. In other words, when I say creative, I don't just mean drawing pictures, painting pictures and putting them in art galleries. I, 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 I could not be more enthusiastic about art. I love it. Uh, try to do a little bit myself as I have time, like when I go on holiday, encourage my children and so on and so forth. We ought to be creative in the whole range of what we can do, which includes all kinds of things. If you're a scientist, do your science for God. If you're an engineer, do your engineering for God. If you're an architect, do your architecture. And all of it in the context of a world that is crying and bleeding and needs comfort and needs healing, right? Be creative. Where do you live? Who are your neighbors? Are you being creative in helping them? That's what I mean by be creative. The Christian mind is creative and compassionate and thinking, look, here is a world. Jesus came into the world to save, to seek and to save that which which doesn't mean just being creative about evangelism but of healing the sick, building better sewerage systems, getting the water clean, etc., etc. Finally, confrontational. I'm sorry to have to end with this, but my own conviction, and let me say this very carefully, you may want to take me up on this, 
is that many people think that the age of ideologies is, uh, is over. Now, we, we saw uh, uh, fascism in Italy with Mussolini. Yes, we saw fascism uh, with uh, Hitler in Germany, and we had the Second World War. Uh, yes, we saw Marxism and Stalin and the, the terrible gulag archipelagos. But that's all behind us. Don't believe it. The age of ideologies is not at an end. And that book by Wies called uh, Modern Fascism is a chilling book. The thesis is quite simple. The elements that went to make up the atmosphere in uh, post-First World War Germany, which led to fascism, are present today in the West and increasingly globally. And a mindset is in, in, in place, in other words, a mindset is in place that is fertile for another ideology, a revival of fascism. And he doesn't just mean fascism you know, like the, uh, the skinheads and all the, all the, uh, the racial uh, 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 riots and so on that one sees in, in Europe, the National Front and so on. He means something much more serious, and I do too. Now, one of the things that I think is going to characterize the new ideology is pluralism. I mean, religious pluralism. Just as in the Roman Empire. They try to hold the Roman Empire together, you remember? Uh, Augustus Caesar by building a pantheon. It's still there in Rome. And they put all the gods in, in, the, in, the, in the circle. Oops! Where do you put Jesus? You can't. He just doesn't belong there. He's over the pantheon. He's over the universe. You cannot put him in a temple, right? And the, and the, and the Christians said no. And so where do they end up? in the arena. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm, I'm really, this, this is where we are. You can see it. It's writ large in the culture. Yeah. And what I'm suggesting is that the, 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 in, the, in the midst of all of that, the temptation to just be quiet and not say anything is immense. In whatever field you are, whether it's medic, medicine, teaching, business, etc., etc., and what you find as you read the Bible in the New Testament is not in a, an offensive way, you know, to be confrontational, like, you want to scrap? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't mean that. But they very quietly and deliberately drew a line and said, this is true, this is false. So how does Paul end his encounter with the philosophers in Athens? God was patient with all of this, but now he has fixed a time when he is going to judge you on the basis of Jesus' coming. And that kind of mentality we must cultivate amongst ourselves. And it's going to be very, very costly, increasingly. And some, those particularly who are, who are involved in, in, uh, in um, protests, in, the, in lobbying, in parliament and so on and so forth, are finding it increasingly difficult and, and uh, challenging some of the attitudes that exist in our society is going to be more and more costly. So, my point is this. Whether with your neighbor 
and, and I'm, obviously one must be very gentle in all of these situations or whether in the public arena we must draw a line and the, the simple way to say it is just this look, that's wrong if you do not clarify what you don't believe when you say what you do believe they're not even going to understand you because the word God is meaningless today you can make it mean anything you like and they can do pretty much the same with Jesus. In other words, irrationalism has broken on us and uh, people believe anything, credulous. Uh, we have Princess Diana uh, uh, dying in tragic circumstances and uh, immediately the country expresses what it actually already is, a sort of a Hindu festival takes place. I I'm not trying to be harsh. Yeah, But in that sort of a climate... We must be clear and we say, listen, God is not like this. God is not a force. God is not any God you like. Christianity is not just having nice feelings, etc. It is the truth. The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. Anyway, my dear friends, uh, let's pray together briefly. If any of you feel like you have to pack up and go then uh, that's all right by me. But I hope we can have some time for discussion. All right, let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to the close of this um, presentation, we do pray that you will help us to uh, honor you and your word and uh, to present ourselves, uh, like Paul says, as a living sacrifice. Uh, to offer all that we are to you and very particularly as we've talked about the mind uh, <clears throat> to take our gifts that you've given us the, the minds that we have and our particular interests and to use them for you and Lord by your grace please have mercy upon us in this desperate moment in which we live and incline the hearts of people to listen and to hear may we as we go out and speak with uh, confidence and courage and sometimes with great trembling inside, Lord, may there be a, a, a reception of your word, unprecedented before. Have mercy on us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, John, if you would like to chair us, then I'll... Well, before I do that, I'd like to thank you very much indeed uh, for exciting us. I'm sorry that we can't develop the Labrie pattern tonight which is now to go and have a meal and uh, chew over all of that. Um, but we can't do that. But I would say, and I recommend, that if any of you, and I come to holidays in a minute, have some time next year, a great thing to do. I'm sure Brian will agree with me, because he and I went together and others, is just to go perhaps and spend a week uh, and ponder these things and eat over these things and... That's great to do. Anyway, uh, there are five minutes for questions. And I'm very anxious to allow people who have not yet asked questions in this series to do so if they want to. I don't want to be accused, and who would dare do that, of me being dictatorial or confrontational or difficult. So if there's anyone that would like to ask anything at all or take up a point that Randall has made, please do. Um, I'm not a natural chairman. I don't like doing it. Um, I much prefer to be able to ask questions. I always find myself in an awkward position here. So, please, questions, comments. Um, I have a question. It's about the Christian Institute. <laughs>
I'm sorry, I, I, I'm going to insist, if you don't mind, uh, you can answer, ask questions of me with Mrs. Blazer, but I'm going to take questions of what Randall has said, if you don't mind. So if you, if you respect that. Thank you. Yes. Um, I think um, for a lot, of, a lot of kind of Christians, they would find um, uh, possibly within, within that, the kind of the idea of anti-intellectualism, kind of the, the jump two feet into Labrie or whatever, quite a challenge. Mm. Is there any kind of middle ground that, do you know what I mean? For, for, an, awful, for an awful lot of Christians, you, you introduce them to concepts like this. I mean, I'm perfectly happy with it, but an awful lot of Christians, and they're really going to struggle. I'm, I'm, please let me, let me uh, make it quite clear that I'm not trying to advocate Labrie. No, no, sorry. Yeah. I was you know, but, so right. no one has to jump two feet or four feet or anything into the ring. Uh, I know what you mean, though. And I would suggest that all of us just have to start where we are. And one thing that you could do is you could start a little discussion group, have people around your table, you know, prepare a meal. My, my son, when he was at uh, college, he and a couple of friends did that. And they just created a little situation like that, you know, so they could discuss. Because you don't have to land up, you know, way down the track you just start in like you're learning anything mm. um, learning how to fish learning how to ski learning how to skate and you don't you know take off first time catch 20 fish the first time you go fishing you just start where you are and uh, gradually the ideas get clearer you know like I mentioned existential I'm absolutely serious I didn't get an answer for that for quite a while Susan regardless um, and uh, you, you, you don't have to understand everything but you can start to think and you get going. So Think, thinking of literature and things, yeah. um, remember picking up um, Osginus's book, right. Everybody's Fat Minds. I see what you're saying. And, uh, you see a lot of people like they've got more than four syllables in every word. You know, it's, yes. it's the modern the modern Christian. Um, yeah, and that, or otherwise, it's really. Did you all hear that? Yeah. Did you pick the question up? Uh, yeah, he's just saying that uh, some of the books that um, have come out are are uh, using big words and words like existentialism, etc. And hence, it's quite difficult. And I would say, yes, if that's the case, then another thing we've found helpful is having a tape and playing a tape, so you don't, and then just stopping it when the big words come along, <laughs> and then having a little discussion or explanation, and then signaling, people could signal and just say, listen, I don't understand that. Um, a very helpful book, which I don't think is complicated to read, it's just come out, Dick Kyes, published by Baker in the States, called Chameleon Christianity, and he is contrasting evangelicals who are becoming like chameleons and in trying to get involved in the society, they're actually becoming like the society, like chameleons. And then he used another illustration of the musk ox, which uh, uh, forms a circle, you know, protective and very defensive and let's stay away from the culture and so on. And then I think he teases out some of these issues of how to get engaged uh, in thinking, etc. So, but if you, if, if, Books are the problem. Then try something else. You know, as I say, tapes or the videos. Um, there are other ways. But I, the the main thing, though, is just to is to uh, have your own a personal relationship with people and trying to help them in talking it may take time. Does that? church, it's, it's ten years old, and um, 
since, since we've grown in size and um, some people have moved away and other people have moved in, uh, and obviously as the decade has moved on, um, society has also moved on, and I um, was starting to wonder why I, I could not relate to um, other Christians who, who I knew were saved and, and I felt were spiritual people. Um, and, uh, and I wondered about that for, for years, just idly, how I never seemed to connect at, um, fully with, with their mind. And I, uh, I kind of came to realise in the summer that it was because they didn't have a, a system of absolutes mm. where mm. God yeah. was not mm. just um, um, the good side of things, but He... Mm. Uh, um, I think it's true that people think that there is the good side and the bad side, mm-hmm. whereas uh, God is good and there is nothing bad in Him, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, anything that is not of God is bad. And uh, mm-hmm. I think um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, I just find I struggle, I really struggle mm-hmm. with um, the way that uh, people's minds are. Mm-hmm. Um, certain people in our church, and I just um, I fear. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, most of the youth seem to be going that way now, because they are the children of these people mm-hmm. who feel that there are no absolutes, and mm-hmm. one can't stand up and tell somebody that he or she is wrong and stand on the Bible because that is not a nice thing to do. And how can one tell somebody uh, from the Scripture voice right or wrong? How would you deal with that? Well, I, I, th- I think, you know, I mentioned this book by Wies called Modern uh, Fascism, and he traces uh, the fascist mind back to three things, romanticism, evolutionism, and, and then existentialism. And under existentialism, he just means this relativistic um, approach that you've mentioned, you know, like who can say what's true, and you ha- everyone has their own way of, of seeing things. But there's another flip side to that, and, and I use the word experientialism. And uh, I think what's, what's so... Um, by, by that I just mean that the, the criterion that people are using now is not, as you say, absolutes that there are things that are right and wrong, but does it feel good? Okay. And we've been concentrating this evening on the intellectual issues quite appropriately, but what makes me so terrified, I, I didn't use the quote that I sometimes use um, of Carl Henry's. I mean, he has a dramatic statement in one of his essays in, in the book uh, Twilight of a Great Civilization, in which he says, we may now, even now, be living in the half generation. This is written at about the end of the 80s. We may, may even now be living in the half generation before all hell breaks loose. And uh, we will be remembered, if we are remembered at all, as those who gave their hearts and minds and very bodies to plug the dikes against impending doom. That's a very sober... Uh, um, he's, a, he's an academic. Um, he's not someone who's melodramatic. He's an older statesman in, in America, rather like John Stott is here, uh, right? Um, so he, he has no, no one just sort of shooting his mouth. And he can make as dramatic a statement as, as that. Now, I think, putting in my own words, what leads him to that kind of desperate statement, right, 
against impending doom is that you've got two things converging. This is my own illustration, okay? So now it's not Carl Henry. Okay? But you've got the, the tradition that we've been talking about this evening of intellectual bankruptcy as a result of the Enlightenment coming up to the present. No answers, nihilism, etc. But simultaneously, and this is the point, you've got what's called hypermodernity. Hypermodernity is just the result of technology and, and its kind of natural progression that now we've got a computer that goes like this and now we've got something which goes faster and everything's going faster and faster and faster. And, and the, the, the impact of this, and the media in particular, is another force that is not the same as this. Okay? It's a technological... I, I use the word, and I'm thinking of the analogy of the water flood, the technological flood. That the whole world is just being flooded by technology. Now, it doesn't mean the technology is wrong, okay? but it just is a phenomenon that you have to look at, like we were saying about the major restoration, and what does that mean? We, when you look out and you just see the roads in gridlock, you see youngsters, you know... In, in, into uh, the media in a way which is just deadening to their minds. Okay? And so the irrationalism, to sum it up, is not just coming from the intellectual side, it's coming from the practical side. And these two things have come together, the impending doom. And so that's one of the, you know, that's one of the things I think we need to, to take into account, the experientialism is partly the result of this technological development too. So when you put the two together, I'm agreeing with you, but when you put the two together, no thinking in terms of absolutes, and a culture where it's just feeling, 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 uh, what do we do now, what do we do now, you know, let's go to the next thing, come on, you know, doesn't feel good. That's devastating. And that's why, you see, V says that the seedbed that created fascism in the 30s is now present right here in our midst in the West. <laughs>